scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians. And I, I had a terrible time choosing between two passages in Ephesians. Uh, and so I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. But I want to give you one verse from Ephesians chapter 1. So we have our pew Bibles out again. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of those. Uh, you can use the index to find the book of Ephesians, or you can thumb through. Uh, it's towards, towards the end of the Bible. Before I read from chapter 2, I'm going to read just one verse, the very last, actually last two verses from Ephesians chapter 1. It says, and he, talking about God, put all things under his feet, under the feet of Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now reading from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, as we, as we read Scripture, I think it's really critical to see ourselves in the text when the Word says, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is true of every church where Jesus is preached. So I could look at your faces and call your names and include my own name and say, God is building us together in this little local temple that's part of the global church. And God himself dwells among us and is with us in times of great blessing and joy and in times of great trial and weakness. God himself is doing this work among us. This is the idea that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy. So I want to invite you to turn there as we continue our series through 1 Timothy. And I've entitled my message today, Being in God's House. The text that I read from Ephesians said, you are the household of God, you are God's house, and then explains God's house as being a temple where he dwells. 
And Paul continues that idea in his letter to Timothy, written a few years later. Timothy is the young pastor of this church in Ephesus. And I've got three points that I want to share with you today that help us understand what the church is and what the church should be. Number one, church conduct. What we do. Number two, church essence. What we are. And then number three, church confession, what we believe. And all three of those are intimately related, what we do, what we are, and what we believe. And my goal in preaching this message is that we would have a sense of awe that this is God's house and we live in his presence. And so we are excited about what he is doing. We are resting in what he has done. And we are going to obediently follow the instructions that he has given us. But before I dive into the text, um, there's something special and strange if you've grown up in a church um, about the building where your church met. In fact, I feel a little bit bad. There's nothing spiritual about it, but I feel a little bit bad for some of the churches that meet in schools because I think this piece is missing. And, and here's what I mean. There's nothing spiritual. There are great churches that meet in schools. There are great churches that don't have a building at all. But here's the wonder and joy of growing up in church as a child with a building, especially if it's an old building that's been added on to. Here's what I mean. So I, I grew up at First Baptist Church of Oak Park. And that building had an old part and a new part. They had added on and added a larger sanctuary to it and connected it to the older part. And there were multiple places where you could get to a second story. Some of them were connected. So if you went through the main entrance uh, to the right, there was a stairway that as a four-year-old, I thought it went straight to heaven. It was crazy long. It was huge. As I called my parents last night, I was like, how long was that stairway? And they're like, it was a pretty normal stairway. And then I was like, okay, so like for a house? And they're like, no, it was longer than the stairs in our house, but it, it was pretty long, about 15, 20 feet long. And there were no windows and there were mace, like stones on either side. So it was pretty dark. So it just seemed like this giant, enormous tunnel. And that's where we sent the, the toddlers. If you went up that stairway, there was a door in the back that toddlers were not allowed to go through, but it connected it to the offices that were above the old part of the church. And the way they had built that church was if you went in the old building, I knew it as a gymnasium because that's what it had become. But if you went in the old building, that's where they would have had their pews or their chairs or whatever they did to sit in. And then there was a baptistry. It was a Baptist church. You can't have a church without a baptistry. So there, there was a baptistry in the back. And then there was a hallway on either side that had stairways running up to the second floor. When they built the new building, they put doorways in both of those. And here is the magical thing that that did for a child. It meant if you were playing tag you could never be caught because you could run in a giant circle. And that's not even the best part of the building. The best part of the building was in the new part because what they had done, and I don't know why, to, to be honest, as an adult, if I were building a building, I, I don't know why they did this. But 
they built a basement behind the sanctuary. There wasn't a basement under the new sanctuary. And they had a choir room. They put the choir in the basement where you could keep an eye on them. And they built Sunday school rooms above that choir basement. So you could go down a set of stairs into the choir room. That led to another practice room that had a doorway onto the sanctuary. So you see what's happening here? You could run through the sanctuary, up the choir loft, and then down the stairs and have another loop with great stairs. The stairs that led up at the bottom of those stairs, I'm not describing this super well, uh, also went for probably 30 or 40 feet because they started in a basement and then went higher than the sanctuary so that you could come out in the baptistry, which was elevated above the floor of the sanctuary. So there was a wonder and awe as you grew up that you could play in this place. And we did. We, we had fun Wednesday night programs where every now and then they would let us have run of the whole building. We'd play hide and seek. And there were so many places that were difficult to access. I remember the first time I opened the door to the basement and I knew I kind of wasn't supposed to. And it was just like, what's in here? It was a crazy great place. And now I'm describing all of this and I'm seeing on your faces, like some of you identify with this and understand exactly, like nine-year-old Phil was bouncing off the walls of his office as he thought about all the reckless fun that he had as a kid in this building. I don't see very many grumpy faces and I'm thankful for that. But what's one thing that you know, especially if you run in church on a Sunday morning, what do you hear from every usher and old lady? Don't run in church. Don't do it. Right? And I think, okay, there are pretty good reasons for that. You don't want to hurt anybody. There's a time and a place for having reckless fun. I think God loves it when we enjoy reckless fun. But there's also a time and a place to be still and to know that God is holy. As Protestants, we understand there's nothing sacred about a building. The New Testament is so clear that the church, the people, are the temple of God. And so wherever the people meet, for hundreds of years, churches didn't even own buildings. Wherever the people meet, that's where the presence of God is in a special and in a particular way. And yet we still have to wrestle with the fact that we are coming into the presence of God when we gather to worship. So the right question to ask is, how do you behave in God's house? How do you behave in God's house? I think, especially during Awana, there's a time and a place to run with reckless abandon and to take real joy in playing. That's good, and that's healthy, and that's right. But there's also a time to be still, and to listen to the word, and to marvel at the mystery of what God has done. And Paul gives us this book in particular, so that we know how to behave in God's house. 
Now, I'm only going to read a few verses this morning. My text is somewhat small, but I want to go in depth here as we answer the question, if we really believe that God is in this place, what does that mean for what we do and how we behave? So I want to invite you to follow along with me. I'm in chapter 3, whether you've got a phone or you've opened your Bible. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 16. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, as I said a moment ago, I want to talk about church conduct, what we do, church essence, what we are, and then church confession, what we believe. And to begin with, I want to talk about church conduct. Friends, there is urgency in understanding how we must behave in the household of God. And I don't want to skip verse 14 because verse 14 gives us this urgency. Now, Timothy had worked with Paul for years. He had traveled to different churches. He had seen Paul establish leadership in the church. And at this point in the letter, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. These instructions could not wait for young Timothy. Paul wrote them down for his benefit and for ours. And he uses some strong language when he says, I'm writing so that you may know how one ought to behave. The Greek word there is day, and it means how it is necessary for one to behave. In other words, in the presence of a holy God, there are things that are appropriate and there are things that are not appropriate. If you read through the Old Testament and look at the ministry of the priests and the temple that God established there, because Christ had not died yet and been raised, there was a terrifying aspect of the ministry of the priests. That if the priest did not follow God's clear instructions, and if the priest did not obey everything in terms of ritual purity, that he could die in the presence of a holy God. Multiple times, priests are warned, and in a few instances, priests do die because they take lightly what God had said. Now, friends, we live in an age where we rest in the blood of Jesus, that his perfect sacrifice covers our sins, and yet it is still a sacred honor to believe that God is among us and that this is his household not mine, not yours, but his. And Paul, with urgency, writes, so that one may know how to behave in the church of God. 
And I believe he's referring to the whole letter. So when we talk about church conduct and what we do, I believe we should look from the beginning of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 6 to find out what we do as a church. If you look at how Paul organizes his material, after he celebrates the gospel that has saved him, after he gives every person hope that no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven for your sins because God forgave Paul, the chief of sinners. That the message that we preach is an open message to anyone and everyone, regardless of how you feel about who you are or the sins that you have committed and are guilty of. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you can be forgiven through his blood. And that's the message that calls together and creates the church. And so after Paul says, be faithful to that message, don't deviate from it. That's the message that calls us together. He begins giving instructions to the people who are called together. The word church, ecclesia, it means called out, called together, called by God. And so he begins giving instructions for those who are called together by God. He says that prayer is to be the first priority of God's people. That they are to lift holy hands in prayer. And that it's God's will that we pray for kings and those in high positions of authority. And that we would pray together in unity. He then gives general instructions to men in worship. Some general instructions to women in worship. And then begins to describe the qualifications for overseers or elders and deacons. Why? Because it's the overseers and elders and it's the deacons that lead the church in their faithful ministry. But not only that, the letter continues. Chapter 4 begins particular instructions to young Timothy as the lead pastor or the lead elder. Paul says to Timothy, Pastor, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to the teaching, for in doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. The church can do a lot of good things. But if we neglect the word, salvation is in peril because people are saved when they hear the gospel and believe it. And if they do not hear the gospel, they will not be saved. The Lord uses the preaching of his word to help believers persevere. And if they do not hear the word preached, they will not persevere. So Paul says it's an issue of great urgency to be devoted to the word as a pastor. And then he begins to give Timothy some tips for dealing with different types of people in the congregation. Talks about how to relate to to older men, how to relate to older women, younger men and younger women. how How to help your deacons run the ministry to widows and shut ins. So there are very practical tips about how to, and I shouldn't even say tips, there are very practical instructions for how to make sure that your ministries reflect the gospel and God's instructions and and commands for his people, the church. So in other words, in six chapters, Paul tries to cover just about every aspect of church ministry. He talks about how a pastor should pastor different groups of people, like rich people. You might be tempted to make them happy. And he says, no, you need to warn the rich people that they can't depend on their riches. 
He talks about how to minister to poor people. He talks about how to minister to slaves. He talks about how to minister to old ladies. And Paul warns Timothy of false teaching, and he warns him of the temptation to quit in ministry. In other words, in six chapters, Paul tries to cover just about everything Timothy is going to encounter in life and in ministry. And I realize that we're only halfway through this book right now. And I realize this is only the first point of my outline, but, but I want to take a stab at what I believe we as a church should take away from this book. I believe that we should trust that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, that when he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus appointed by God, that we read this as something written by an apostle of Jesus appointed by God, inspired by the Spirit. That number one, one of the things that we must take away is we must celebrate the gospel like Paul did in chapter one. We must, as believers in Jesus, make praying together a priority. Whether we do it at 9.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning or whether we do it at 8.30 a.m. on a Wednesday or another time throughout the week, we must gather to pray. I think that we must trust that the pattern that God lays out in scriptures for elders and deacons is a pattern that we can follow today, that will bless the church as we look for those who are qualified biblically to lead. Friends, I believe that when we deviate from this pattern, we will not be a strong church. And if we deviate too far from this pattern... Some have even ceased to be a church altogether. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there are people that gather that no longer preach the gospel. And if you lose sight of what Jesus has done and that God is the one who has called us together in worship of Jesus, you can call yourself whatever you want, but you're no longer a church. The church gathers to worship the Lord and to proclaim the gospel and to serve the Lord. If we dismiss his word to us, I believe that we are in danger of dismissing him as the one who has called us together. I believe that if we deviate from this pattern, we will not function as we should, and we will not display what we should. Now, I've used the word display very deliberately there. What am I I talking about? What is the church supposed to display? Well, that gets at what we are. So number one, God has given us instructions on how to behave in this household. I believe the instructions are from chapter one to chapter six. They include the priority of prayer. They include establishing biblical leadership. They include devotion to the word. They include compassionate ministries. Those are all the things we do. We preach, we pray, we serve, we submit. Those are the things we do, but then the question becomes, what are we? So look with me at verse 15, and Paul describes what the church is. Paul says not only is he writing so that we would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, he gives us this definition after he describes us as the household of God. He says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church, number one, is the place where the living God displays truth. 
The church is the place where the living God displays truth. And I want to ask you to think about the language that he uses there for just a moment. He says two words, pillar and buttress. Now, a pillar has two functions, really. One of them is structural, the other is aesthetic. So the primary function of a pillar is to hold the roof up. You don't want the roof to collapse. Your pillar needs solid support. That is the structural function of a pillar. But the aesthetic function of a pillar is beauty. And Paul is writing in a place where ancient temples used hundreds of pillars, not just for structural support, but to make the marble buildings visible for miles. And Paul says, the church of the living God may not have a physical building, but the church of the living God is to hold truth up high to display it as precious. So think about what is precious to you and how you treat it in your home. Maybe you've got a bowling trophy on your mantle that you remember glory days of bowling. You're like, that was the time that I finally did it. And you put this thing on display so everyone can see it. If you walk into my home, you'll see bookshelves that have all of our books, kids' books, adult books. You'll see hundreds and hundreds of books. In fact, Andrew, you said when you walked in my home, you guys have a lot of books, right? Yeah. I think no matter where we live, I would like that to be the case. If I'm totally honest, partly I'd also have to admit we didn't have any place else to put them, so that's where they are. But you display what's precious and valuable to you. The question is, what is the church supposed to display? What do we put on for the watching world to see? And Paul doesn't make any apologies. He says that we are the pillar and buttress of the truth. Not a truth, not my truth, not your truth, but the truth, the actual truth. Paul makes it very clear. He preaches a gospel of historical events that did happen. This is not an encouraging myth that's inclined to make you feel better. This is documented history that Christ died and Christ was raised from the dead. And because we believe this message that God is forgiving our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, we display this truth. Christ lived and died and rose in history. You must confess your sins or you will suffer God's wrath. That is not an opinion. That is truth. If you believe that the church is a social club where you enjoy spending time with your friends and you can do some good works, there are lots of organizations that do that. The truth is essential to who we are. You cannot become a member of the church, this church or any church, unless you agree that you are a sinner and you need a savior. That's not my opinion. That's truth. The truth is God loves you. He's not absent from your life. God loves you so much, he sent his son to die in your place to save you from his righteous judgment. 
Many people believe that the God of the Bible is an angry bigot. That is false. The truth is that God is a God of love and compassion, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end. That is truth, friends, that we will wrestle with. My sister left me and my brother a message earlier this week when I could still get messages on my phone, and she's reading through the book of Lamentations. If you've never read Lamentations, it's just five chapters long. It's a short book in the Old Testament. Here's what it's like. It is the darkest, blackest night of discouragement that you can ever imagine with one of the most beautiful glimmering diamonds right in the center of it. Chapter 3 is a beautiful, bright, and shining star of hope in the middle of utter blackness. Some of you have read the news and been horrified or, or watched the news and been horrified about the violence that's happening in Afghanistan. I got a paper earlier this week, looked at the cover, and flipped it over because I did not want my kids or anybody to see the blood that was all over the picture on the front page. The things that are happening in this world are terrible. And when you read the book of Lamentations, you recognize and realize that terrible things have been happening in this world for thousands of years. And my sister Amy was saying, hey, is it wrong of me to love some of these verses and to really, really struggle with the others? And in one sense, I want to say, It might be, because if you look at the verses that describe God's righteous judgment and you say God has no business doing that, then you are saying that God is not righteous and God is not just. And that's sinful and that's wrong. But here's why Lamentations is so precious. Because in the blackest darkness of human history, Jeremiah says these words, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Lamentation says that God's judgment is his curious work, that he does not judge from the heart as if he is an angry God, but he is a God full of mercy and compassion. This is the truth that we hold high. Yes, judgment is real. Hell is real. That is true. If we deny that truth, we are not functioning as a church that holds the truth high. But the precious truth of the entire Bible is that God is a God who is full of compassion and mercy and love. His love for you is precious and you must repent and have your sins forgiven, washed away by the blood of Jesus so that you can be part of this beautiful, amazing family. Friends, the church is a pillar and buttress of this truth. We hold it high. Our job is to proclaim it not only in words, but in our conduct. The way that we treat widows who have no means of providing for themselves is a direct outlet of the love that we have received in Jesus. The way that we tolerate falsehood is a direct relationship 
to whether or not we genuinely believe the truth. Our job as a church is to hold the truth high. Some have falsely thought that it's the church's job to declare or create truth. That's not what a pillar does. God is the one who declares truth. God is truth. It's our job to display it. We must put this grace and this mercy on display as we tell stories of how we became believers, how our sins were forgiven, as we remember the body and blood of Jesus in communion like we'll do next week. We must put this grace on display when we love each other and forgive each other. In Ephesians, when Paul describes all of the ways that the truth of the gospel changes our lives, he says that we are to be patient with one another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake has forgiven us. Paul is not naive. He knows that even saved sinners are going to fight and disagree, and it can get ugly and messy. And he says, in the mess, love each other and forgive each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And our forgiveness puts the truth on display. So number one, we behave in the household of God by doing what he tells us to do, We've got a really good start of knowing exactly what he tells us to do. When we make the gospel precious, when we are faithful in prayer, when we follow his instructions for establishing leadership, when we seek to conduct our ministries in line with his word. And then finally this morning, not only does he give us instructions on what to do, not only does he give us instructions on what we are, but my last point is church confession, what we believe. Church confession, what we believe. Look at verse 16 with me. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. I mentioned last week, In the New Testament, mystery is not something that we wonder about that's unsolved. Mystery is something that for a long time was hidden, but is now revealed. It's as if all of human history is a giant mystery drama, but we are living in the age where Sherlock Holmes finally tells Dr. Watson what everything meant. The mystery is openly declared and displayed. And the mystery is this, that Jesus was made manifest in the flesh, that he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. When we describe it as mystery, there's a real sense of awe. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, what God is doing in his church is unthinkable and sacred and beautiful, and it should give you pause. It should make you want to be respectful of this gathering of believers because of what God is doing in our lives. Because God has taken guilty sinners and forgiven them. That ought to make us tremble, especially when we recognize God has taken me, a guilty sinner, and forgiven me. And not only that, he has taken people that should not get along and made them into one family where we are fighting to love each other. There is awe 
in this mystery. That not only was God at work thousands of years ago, he is at work in 2021 at First Baptist Church of Holly and at every church that confesses this truth. This is a great mystery and it ought to make us tremble. If you're not trembling at what God has done and is doing, something is off. The way that we relate to this mystery is, first of all, we confess it. The word confess is not like, I admit that I did something wrong. It means we agree, we believe this is true. You must believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead to be a member of this church or any true church. He describes the mystery in this way. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. God Almighty, all-present, all-powerful, eternal, unending, in the person of Jesus Christ, became a helpless baby. John's gospel describes it this way. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the eternal Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Christians confess that God became a man. When was the last time you marveled at that mystery? If you had shaken hands with Jesus, would you have believed that he is the eternal son of God? Not only was he manifested in the flesh, he was vindicated by the spirit. Friends, if you heard Jesus preach and you wondered, is this man real? Is he a fake? The spirit of God vindicated him. He proved him right in several ways. The Spirit of God vindicated Jesus when Jesus was baptized. And it says the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and gave a public testimony that God was pleased. The Father said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. With him I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God gives a visible testimony, but not only there. Scripture describes how, at least in some of the miracles that Jesus performed, the Spirit of God is on him in power. And so Jesus turns water into wine and he heals the sick and he raises the dead and he casts demons out and shows his authority and power over the wind and the waves. And the things that he says are proved true by the power of the miracles that he used to give credence to what he says. So the Spirit vindicates him in his earthly ministry, but the greatest way that the Spirit vindicates Jesus is when Jesus rises from the dead. One of the guys that I was reading as I studied this, Philip Ryken, notes that this greatest vindication is talked about in other places, like in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit wants you to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. But it doesn't end there. We didn't witness his miracles firsthand. We live a long time after the earthly ministry of Christ. So he continues that this mystery is not done. This mystery 
is present and ongoing. He gives three little words in English here that not only was he vindicated by the Spirit, but he was seen by angels. There are two possibilities that I think are both true about what that line means. One of them is that angels are spiritual beings. First Peter says they long to look into the things that were preached about all through the Bible. That angels are spiritual spectators to the plan of God that's unfolding in human history. So there's the possibility that when Paul says that he was seen by angels, that's just what they're talking about. That there's a divine spiritual component to this mystery that all of the universe, physical and spiritual, are in awe at what God is doing. But there's another possibility that the word angel is really just a word for messenger. And it's also possible that it refers to human messengers. And that makes really good sense here too, because right after the Spirit raised Jesus, Jesus appears to human witnesses and messengers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12 apostles, that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And at that time, most of them were still alive, so you could go talk to a first-hand witness of the risen Christ. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And Paul says, I am a witness to the risen Christ. He's not dead. He's alive. And those messengers went all over the world telling this good news. That's the next line in this mystery we confess, that Jesus is proclaimed among the nations. That's what we're doing today. Imagine 2,000 years ago, they didn't even know America existed, let alone Michigan, let alone Holly. And we are proclaiming the message of Jesus today And so are many believers all around the world. Because those who saw it firsthand preached in power by the Spirit of God. And people continued to confess their sins and be forgiven and believe. Then he says he was believed on in the world, which is why there are churches all the way from China to America to Africa. And that he was taken up in glory. Christian, this is something to marvel at. This is something to be in awe at. When we gather together to sing praises to our everlasting, eternal God, we believe not only that he worked long ago, but that he is at work among us now. I had a guy come into my office this past week, partly talking about some of the stuff that happened in the meeting last Sunday. And he said, Pastor, I believe the Holy Spirit is leading us in this direction. He was concerned about a few things, but he said, I believe that the Spirit of God is leading this change. Now, maybe you don't agree with that. Maybe you do. I I don't know. But here's what we ought to agree on. God is at work in us and among us. One of the ways God regularly works is when we are devoted to his word. 
So the question is, what do we do with everything I've just said? I've talked about how we are supposed to behave and conduct ourselves. I believe this book gives us clear instructions for how we ought to behave and conduct ourselves. I've talked about what we are, how our primary job is to hold the truth up high, the truth of the gospel, that we have hope because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And in conclusion, I've talked about the truth that we confess. This is what we hold up high. So it leads me to two questions. Number one, do you believe this is true? Has there been a time in your life when you've recognized your own sin and your own need of a Savior? That Jesus died as a man for men so that we could be forgiven Have you ever believed that and been saved? Have you been baptized in obedience to his command? Because if you've not believed and you have not been baptized, you are not part of the people of God. It is not your mission to hold the truth high. You are in danger of God's wrath and you must repent. So if there's never been a time in your life when you have repented of your sins and been saved, today I would say to you, repent and believe. You cannot imagine the fullness of joy that awaits for you if you trust in Christ. And I want to urge you to believe and be saved. If you'd like to talk to me, unfortunately right now you cannot text me. You can call the church, send me an email. If you're here in person, I'll stay as long as we need to be here. I would love to pray with you and plan to baptize you. But if you are already a believer, what do these verses mean for you and for us as a church? Well, partly, I believe it is this that unites us. This is the church that is made by God. And our church covenant says, we believe that the Holy Spirit of God has led us to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. On the profession of this faith, we have been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In response to these truths, in the presence of God, angels, and this gathering of fellow members, we solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a big deal. We should not take that lightly. We promise to be the church that the Holy Spirit has called together. And since God is the one who has called this church together, I believe that we must take his instructions seriously. So if you are already a believer and you are already a member of this church, I want to ask you, Will you treat all of this book, Genesis to Revelation, as the divinely inspired word of God? Will you believe it and obey it? Will you rejoice in it? Are we as a church ready to follow the instructions that God has given us in this book? Instructions about prayer together as the first order of business in God's house. Instructions about the nature of leadership. Instructions about the prominence and priority of the word. That salvation depends on the public reading of scripture and careful teaching. 
Because if you are a member of our church, this is not my opinion or my word to you. This is the word of God to you. If church is something else to you, if it's a social club, if it happens to be where you hang out with your friends or where you do things together, then I believe that we have minimized the word of God and are not following it and will not be blessed by it. And I believe that we need to make a choice. Is the Bible our highest authority? Will it govern us and lead us? Will we allow God to work among us as he builds his temple? I would encourage you to answer these questions carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully. And I believe that as we submit to the word of God, we will see tremendous blessing. And I want to end like this. I believe nothing, absolutely nothing in this life will ever compare to the richness and the fullness of joy in heaven. In this life, there are horrible pains. Known people who are experiencing divorce right now, the newspapers are full of blood and horror, and all of us long for peace and happiness. But there is not a love deeper than the love of God for his people. Not the deepest love between the happiest couple, not even the joy of new babies, not even the illicit things that people go after. There's no high from even the best drugs. There's no excitement from even the greatest concert. There is nothing that compares to what awaits those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, pure, holy, and unending. The best joy that you have ever experienced is a drop in the ocean of the eternal joy in the presence of God that awaits his people. So are you part of this mystery, what God is doing? If you don't know for sure, would you talk to me today? And if you believe you're a part of it, would you fight to be faithful to the word that he's given us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, together we want to confess that this mystery of what you're doing is truly great and awesome. You are high and holy, and yet you have shown yourself a friend of sinners. We confess our own sin and want to praise you and thank you for the mercy that you've given to us. And humbly ask, Lord, build your church here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.